0: Good morning. We turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. hope you have had a wonderful July 4th weekend. It's amazing how these holidays kind of remind me of how fast time goes. Uh, There's something unique about holidays that just remind me how our lives are like a breath. In fact, I heard Nate and Seth talking yesterday and Dion Sanders, the, the football player was brought up between them and Seth was asking Nate about Dion Sanders and Nate said, yeah, he, he's, a, he's a guy who played back in the 1900s. <laughs> I mean, we're We're in the 13th year of the 21st century, and and perhaps that's why this passage today uh, is so important to us. One of the reasons is because time is a vapor, and we need to be prepared for eternity. If you look with me in verse 25... At this point, Jesus has left a a dinner, a Sabbath dinner, where he had a conversation with the religious leaders of his day. And it says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. Father, we know that every text is inspired of God and comes to us as the inerrant, infallible, authoritative word from the living God. But when Jesus tells us through the inspired text that he who has ears, let him hear, it should cause all of us to pause and to reflect on the importance of his words. We pray today that you would give us ears to hear. May I not tame this text in any way. May I not preach this text more prophetically than it allows. But may I not tone it down and preach it less prophetically than what it demands. And I pray that there's any here today that have never taken up his cross, taken her cross. Today would be the day which they are compelled to do so. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you remember the the ill-fated mission to Mars back in the 1900s. Um, And it was in 1999, December... That the Mo- the Mars Polar Lander, which was a hundred and sixty five million dollar spacecraft, began to make its descent onto the planet Mars, uh, but uh, it slammed into the planet's surface and it just crashed into thousands and thousands of pieces. Later, it was design it was discovered that it was a design flaw. Okay. Uh, that caused the braking system on this lander uh, to uh, cut off uh, too soon. A flaw that could have been prevented, if you will if they had run the right simulation on the computers. Now the question is why didn't NASA run the right simulation on their computers? Well they were trying to minimize cost. And so they did not buy the necessary software to run that simulation. And as a result, this expensive spacecraft slammed into uh, the planet Mars because NASA failed to count the cost of the mission. Well, that's exactly what Jesus wants us to prevent. He wants to prevent us from of uh, counting the cost that it takes to be a, uh, live the life of a disciple. And this is what he is doing in this particular passage. Now there's a change of emphasis in chapter 14 at the very end of the passage up to now. uh, Most of Jesus' confrontations have been with the very religious elite of the culture. The Pharisees, the lawyers, uh, the Sadducees, if you will. But now he's going to change his emphasis and he's going to direct his attention to the masses, to the crowds. And he's going to begin to speak about the Discipleship. In fact, most of the rest of the book is about the terms of discipleship, with just a few exceptions. However, this passage is not disconnected from what has already taken place. Uh, Essentially, if the real religious people of the culture do not know the way of the kingdom, then what is the way of the kingdom? And Jesus is going to teach us that today. And he's going to answer that uh, in a very intriguing way. Uh, The kind of way that would get many pastors fired. Because the things he's going to lay out for the rest of the gospel of Luke is going to thin out the crowds. When pastors preach and the crowds get thinned out, typically those pastors aren't there very long. And yet we see that very method with Jesus. And the first thing we're going to see is the charge of discipleship. Look with me in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, Uh, Now note, at this point, large crowds are still following Jesus. By the time he gets to the cross, those crowds have thinned out massively. There's very few people there with him when he is arrested and is crucified. And this isn't new, though. The crowds have been following him from the very beginning of his ministry. If you look over in chapter 4, in verse 42, it says, And people sought him and came to him. Or if you look over in chapter 5, verse 15. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him. Or then if you look in chapter 6, verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea. And then chapter 7, verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, they marveled at him, and turning to the crowd, they that followed him. Chapter 8, verse 4. And when a great cow crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him. And then if you look over in verse 42, in verse 42 of chapter 8, it says, And Jesus went and the people pressed around him. And then chapter 9, verse 37 chapter 9, verse 37, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And then over in chapter 12, verse 1, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. Crowds had been following Jesus from the very beginning of his uh, ministry. And it's easy for us to depersonalize these crowds. It's easy to think that these crowds were of all of one accord. It's like they all came together on one bus and they all believed the same thing. They all had the same worldview. They all had the same commitments. But the fact is, every crowd is made up of individuals. And there would have been those there uh, who had already made a commitment to Jesus. They understood the terms of discipleship and they would have already committed their lives to Christ. They would have understood what he was coming to do. There would have been others there who had outright rejected him. They were following him out of just pure curiosity. Uh, They would never turn from their sins. They would never repent. They would never believe in the finished work of Jesus. They were just hostile to him. We've seen the Pharisees following him in that way. There would have been others there they were interested, they were respectful, they had sensitivities to Jesus, they recognized that this Jesus was unique, there was something peculiar about this man, but yet they would never fully give their lives to him. They would have responded like we often respond to elevator music. Elevator music doesn't bother us. It doesn't provoke us. In fact, it can be even quite soothing. But elevator music doesn't make us dance. And it would have been those who had followed Jesus but never commit themselves to him. And I would venture to say that this crowd would have been representative of virtually every church crowd in the world today. There would have been people there in every church crowd today that were like the crowds that we see in this passage. And all these various individuals that make up these, uh, this great crowd uh, has believers and has those who need to repent of their sins, those who need to trust in the finished work of Christ. It doesn't happen by osmosis. Well, in Jesus-like fashion, and out of his own grace and out of his own wisdom and out of his own mercy, he's not going to spare anyone with this crowd. Uh, He's not, let's say, stirred with superficial human approval. Uh, It would have been easy with these crowds following him for him to want to give them what they wanted. But he was not in any way, uh, you know, stirred by this superficial approval. Contrary to the way many churches uh, operate today that seem to uh, gauge success strictly by numbers. Okay? Okay? And that's why many churches have a lowest common denominator theology today. You go and, and, and you hear the preaching of the word and there's very little theology, there's very little doctrine, there's very little scripture for that matter. It's just relevant topics to scratch ears of the congregation. Okay? That's the way many churches operate today. And so congregations are fostered um, that uh, believed that the primary task of the church, the primary task of the gospel, is not costly transformation and sacrifice, but pandering to the needs of religious consumers. But Jesus was different. Uh, large crowds did not enamor him. He was not impressed with this kind of superficial, casual spectator. He wanted recruits. And so in order to have these kind of recruits that are going to persevere to the end, he had to lay out the cost up front. And we, as pastors and preachers, have that responsibility as well. It's not this kind of easy believism that is epidemic in American church life today. He he communicates the cost of following Christ up front. And he, so he says in verse 26, in one of the most remarkable verses you'll read, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, the word hate here, uh, the Greek word is misé. And the reason I give it to you is because it's the exact antonym to the word agape. What is agape? It's godlike love. It's costly love. It's absorbing the debt so that you can give grace to someone else. Well, hate is the exact opposite of the word agape. Now, this would have been quite a shocker, and I know that it it is a shocker in this room this morning, and that's why the 19th century liberal, Joseph Renan, said of this text that Jesus was trampling underfoot everything that is human. But what this heretical Renan does not or did not understand is that Jesus is using what is known as a Hebrew idiom. All right? Now, what is an idiom? Well, an idiom is a regional figure of speech. All right? Every culture, every region has figures of speech. We even have sports idioms, if you will. A baseball idiom, for instance, may be uh, that you have ducks on the pond. Well, those aren't literal ducks. It just means that there are men on base. All right? In football, you have a sack. doesn't mean you literally bring out a bag and cover the quarterback with it. A sack is where you tackle the quarterback behind the line of scrimmage when he's seeking to throw the ball. That's an idiom. And we have idioms in American culture that perhaps someone from another culture would not understand. If I said I I used a lot of elbow grease to wash my car, You don't take that literally. You understand what I mean by that is that it it took a lot of hard work to wash my car. Or if, if something cost me an arm and a leg. What I'm saying is it was expensive. Or if you're talking to me and I tell you I'm all ears. I'm not saying that I'm just one big auditory canal. Alright? You know that I mean that I am listening. I am attentive to you. Well, this, uh, this particular statement was a Hebrew idiom. And we know that to be the case because there are other places where Jesus will say, "...honor your father and your mother." He will say that the sum of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. If you took this statement here at face value without understanding it was a regional figure of speech, then we would have to say Jesus was contradicting himself. But that's not what he's doing at all. And in this idiom, what it literally means is you must love something more than you love something else. Okay? And that's why we will read in Romans 9 that Jacob I love, Esau I hated. We well, doesn't mean that he literally hates Esau. But he has this unique saving love for Jacob that is more in uh, efficacy than, it is, than he has for Esau. And so Jesus is saying, if you don't love me more than you love all these other relationships, you're not worthy to be my disciple. In fact, Matthew uh, clarifies this. He says in Matthew 10, 27, in a very similar text, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is essentially saying that it's very possible to have a superficial, casual, and respectful love for Jesus and not be a true disciple. Those are potent words. Now keep in mind, these masses are following him. These crowds are following him. And... We've seen in other texts, they're even hungry. I mean, they are, they are sacrificing to follow him, and yet he recognizes not everyone in the crowd is a true disciple. As the 19th century preacher Thomas Boston said, Jesus means that no man can be a true disciple of Christ to whom Christ is not dearer than what is dearest to him in the world. Now, we don't need to miss this. This is the first of 3 cannots in this text. We see it here in verse 26 where he says, You cannot be my disciple. Verse 27 we see it and we also see it in verse 33. Now the reason we need this text is because of our fallen condition. And Jesus is giving us grace to apply to our fallen condition. And our fallen condition makes us prone to idolatry. We are prone to loving other things, other people, more than we love God. And that is idolatry. That is a violation of the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now this isn't in the text, but it is certainly in other places. When we love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength of that, we will be able to love our family. We'll be able to love our neighbors and our brothers and sisters the way God has called us to love. Okay? So there's always a, there's a a flowing out of this love from God. When we are connected to him, agape love is going to flow out and allow us to love our neighbors and family the way God intended us to love. But we need this text because we are so prone to love things in the created order more than we love God. And if we do, let's just use this idiom in the way Jesus used it, just in an inverse way. If you love something more than you love Jesus, then you love an idol and you hate God. That's the idiom. You love something else and you hate God. What is Jesus doing here? He's laying out the terms of the kingdom. He is simply answering the question, what is Christianity? That's the question he's answering. What is basic Christianity? You see, the word disciple does not mean a special forces Christian. Some kind of superior believer. Someone who's really committed. No, a disciple is the most common word in the New Testament for a Christian. In fact, in the Gospels, the word disciple is used 6,264 times in the Gospels and Acts. And so we're not talking about some kind of superior elite Christian. We're talking about basic Christianity. And that's what makes these words so sobering. Now this needs to be brought into context as well. The people that he was speaking to, uh, the first century Jew, for instance, if they would have... Turned to Christ and began to follow him. It would have most um, definitely alienated them from their families. And so there was a great cost to following Jesus. In other words, there's no such thing in the New Testament. As a casual kind of cultural devotion to Jesus. In America where we have deemed this an American or a Christian America, Christianity has become a cultural, culturally popular thing. Now it's becoming less popular. And I think that's one of the benefits as our, tr- as our country becomes more secular. It's going to draw a line in the sand and we're going to find out who really are the Christians. Because it's going to, it's going to begin to cost us to be a Christian in America. But we somehow uh, bought into the idea that Christianity can be a casual thing. Because of the cultural um, popularity of it. And so what we, we've we traditionally seen, and I've seen this growing up, uh, the pattern is Friday night ball games, Saturday night movies, and Jesus on Sunday morning. Okay? And then work Monday to Friday. And Jesus is a, a, a piece in your calendar, but he's not your life. And Jesus says, that's not true discipleship. That's masquerade Christianity. That is costume Christianity. Indeed, the the price couldn't be any clearer than what we see in verse 27. Uh, Look in verse 27. He says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Of course, those who were going to die on the Roman cross would have to carry their crosses to the place where they would be crucified. That's the imagery that Jesus is painting there. Uh, back, all the way back in chapter 9, verse 51, we saw that he set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus knew that he was coming to die. In fact, we see in the Gospels three times that Jesus predicts his death, his crucifixion. Jesus' mission was one that would take him to a cross. His mission was a cruciform mission. Now you say, why do you use a fancy term like that? It's a very well-known term in church history. The word cruciform is a a, a compound word. Cruci meaning cross. Form meaning in the shape of, in the form of. Jesus' mission came in the form of a cross. He came to die. And what Jesus is making clear here is that if we're to follow him as disciples, we must be cruciform disciples. That's the only kind of disciple. A cruciform disciple. Think about it. Is it possible to be a disciple of someone and not follow them where they go? That by definition is not discipleship. A disciple follows the one that disciples him or her. Uh, Heather and I were in El Salvador a few years ago on a mission trip. And we were out evangelizing and, and we had a an interpreter. And I was speaking to this young man. He was a very warm man. And his wife was pregnant with their first child. And uh, I just... Asked him the question, are you a Christian? Now, uh, that, that question can mean many different things to people. So I always follow that up and clarify what that means. Because I was assuming he was going to tell me yes. And then I was going to start asking him what that meant to him. And, uh, but he looked at me and he said, no, I'm not a Christian. And I said, why are you not a Christian? Through the interpreter, he said, I'm not ready to be a Christian. I said, why are you not ready to be a Christian? He said, because Jesus Christ demands your life. And that struck me. And I told him through the interpreter, I said, you know, you may not be a Christian, but you understand as well as anyone I know the terms of discipleship. Jesus demands your life. Now, let's not turn this into works-based salvation. Self-denial is not what makes you worthy before God. There's nothing we can do that makes us worthy before God. That's why Jesus came. God requires utter, absolute, perfect righteousness. So Jesus lived the life as our representative, as our substitute. And God requires that... Sin be penalized and judged. And so Jesus as our substitute was judged in our place. And it's in trusting Christ that we are made worthy. But it does mean that one cannot follow Jesus except on the way to self-denial. On the way to the cross. You understand that? That's the difference. Someone who is not on the way of self-denial, someone who's not on the way of cross-bearing is not a disciple of Jesus Christ. No matter how many professions of faith he or she has made. And unfortunately, we've made this an American idiom that's toned it down. We hear about people bearing their crosses. So they'll talk about having to drive in a traffic jam to work every day. That's the cross I bear. Or having to inherit some kind of, uh, you know, school debt because of loans they had to take out when they went to school. That's the cross I bear. But Jesus is talking more than about inconvenience. He's talking more than about uh, putting up with some kind of inconvenience. The burden he is calling us to uh, is taking up a cross for the purposes of following him as a disciple. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you must follow my path. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, he's already said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For anyone who desires to save his life will lose it. In other words, if you live your life for yourself, you're going to lose it in the end. You're going you're to stand before God and be judged. But if anyone desires to lose his life, he will Save it. The cross was not an an instrument of mere inconvenience. It was an instrument of slow, torturous death. And Jesus is speaking here of a lifestyle of daily death to self. Daily death to sin. Daily death to silence. Silence. Where you are too ashamed to share the name of Christ with those around you. It's a willingness to bear reproach for His name. Does that describe you? Does that describe you? That's what Jesus is calling us to. One commentator says it means the acceptance of sacrifice, suffering, persecution experienced in the wholehearted following of Jesus. And not just ordinary suffering. This includes our finances, our relationships, our reputation, our time, everything. Are we bearing our crosses? Jesus, if you're not bearing your cross, you're not a disciple. No matter how many times you've responded to an altar call. Now, Jesus is going to give us three illustrations to drive this home. And that brings us to the consideration of discipleship. Look in verses uh, 28 to 30. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish all... Who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So he has this picture of a building that you begin to build, and there are buildings all over the world today that remain unfinished because they did not count the cost. Jesus is saying there are many like that in the uh, Christian life. It's the picture of a, of a believer uh, our professing believer who out of the emotion of the moment have these new kind of found priorities. I've met them here. I've had people come, will you meet with me on a weekly basis and all of a sudden they disappear and the FBI can't find them. Because they had a, a crisis moment in their life and so they come to God, or so they think, and they think God's just going to f- bail them out. And when they realize that coming to God does not mean you're necessarily going to be bailed out of your sinful choices, they recognize, I don't want to really pay the price after all. They, and so they disappear. Okay? Okay? Today, 27 years ago, can't believe it's been 27 years, but today, July the 7th, 1986, I left home to go play football at the University of Alabama. Um, And when we got there as freshmen, we still had three weeks of summer conditioning before, uh, before camp started. And I'm telling you, I thought I was in shape. And after three weeks, I realized I didn't know what conditioning was. And after three weeks, we already had some freshmen quit. And then we went through three weeks, I kid you not, of three-a-days. Three practices a day under Ray Perkins. The freshmen reported a week early, so the freshmen had a week of three-a-days. And then the varsity reported, and we had two more weeks of three-a-days. At the end of those three weeks, more freshmen had quit. And then we went through our first off-season conditioning program in the spring and by the time that off-season conditioning program was done, more freshmen had quit. At the end of my senior year, after four years there at the University of Alabama, more than half of our freshman class that had reported with me in July of 1986 was gone. They disappeared. Why? Because they loved the idea of playing football at the University of Alabama, but they had not counted the cost. And that's what Jesus is desiring that we avoid here. How many professing Christians are like that? They're proverbially on fire. Man, they've got all these commitments, but six months and one year later, they've disappeared. And because of a flawed understanding of eternal security, and let me say, I strongly hold to the doctrine of eternal security. I believe it's taught in the Bible but not the flawed understanding that we see in much of Southern Baptist life. Because eternal security is not just that I have greasy grace and I can do anything I want to do and I'm never going to lose my salvation. If you see it that way, you were never saved. Because grace not only saves you from the penalty of sin, it saves you from the power of sin. You recognize that. You've been given new birth. You're new. You have a new disposition to sin. But this idea that you can pray a prayer and treat it like it's some kind of magical formula. And 30 years later, you're living in... Utter disobedience to God, and the average Southern Baptist would say, "Well, they, they were saved. I know they were saved, but um, you know they're just they got some sin in their life. They got a good heart. Uh, uh, you know they're just acting carnal right now. Is that what Jesus is saying? We need to let our doctrines be formed by the Scriptures." That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus said, if you don't take up your cross and this is not representative of your life, you're not a true disciple. We've already seen the, the parable of the soils. There's a kind of soil that receives the word, but when the trials and the vicissitudes of life come, it falls by the wayside. It was never saved. And Jesus is saying, you need to count the cost. And that brings us to the next story. He says, Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now this is a tougher story to interpret. And there are all kinds of positions on what he is getting at here. But one thing is for certain. There is a A king with lesser resources, a lesser king, if you will, who's faced with a confrontation with a greater king who has greater resources. And he is left to defend himself. Now the question is, who's the weaker king? Well, there's no question there. That's us. We're the weaker king in this story. We're the ones with the lesser resources, if you will. The question is, who's the stronger king? Who's coming against us? Well, in one sense, you could say it's the devil. And there is a personal devil that comes against us. But I don't think that's who it's referring to here. I think the greater king who comes against us is God himself. You recognize that there is wrath on sin. There is judgment that is coming to those who refuse to repent. I think the greater king that is coming against us is God unless we meet the terms of peace. That's what he says here. Now, how do we meet the terms of peace? Through the substitute. That's the whole purpose of the gospel of Luke, is to flee to the substitute. If we don't recognize our dire condition before a holy God, Jesus will be at best a cultural icon for us. Until we recognize that we stand under the sentence of judgment because of our sin, we will not flee to him. But when we recognize this greater king is coming against us and that he in his grace has provided a way of peace in Jesus, what will we do? We will flee to the substitute. And we will say, Father, I want the substitute to be my righteousness. I want the substitute to be the one who takes the judgment that I deserve. But how do you get the substitute? We must become his disciples. That's the key. We must become his disciples. Verse 33 sums up the terms of this discipleship. It just sums up the entire passage. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now what's helpful here, he has given us some examples already in Luke of what this looks like. For instance, in chapter five, the disciples left everything and followed him. Chapter five, verse 11. And then in chapter 5, verse 27, when he called Levi, he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. What are these illustrations in chapter 5 pointing us to? What are they saying? Well, I love what one commentator says. Every disciple must relinquish all his possessions, not merely money and material things, but also his dear ones and everything that his heart clings to. Yes, even his own life, his own desires, plans, ideas, and interests. This does not mean that he must sell all his possessions or give away all his money or desert his dear ones and become a hermit or beggar or wanderer. But it means that he must give Christ full control over his whole life with everything Thing that he is and all that he possesses. And that under his guidance and in his service he should deal with his possessions in the manner that is best. Is that indicative of you? Does that describe you? That's a very important question that you have to answer. Because if it does not describe you, Jesus says you are not his disciple. And then he closes this passage with the cost of non-discipleship. If you refuse to meet the terms of discipleship, and there is a great cost to discipleship, that is bearing a cross, consider the cost of non-discipleship. He says, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In a nutshell, what he is saying here, if we are not disciples of Jesus, then we are of no spiritual use. And there's a great cost to being of no spiritual use. We'll waste our lives, first of all, And a wasted life is a terrible thing to waste. But of more importance, there will be a judgment that awaits us for all eternity. An eternal conscious judgment. That's the cost of non-discipleship. Requires a cross, is what Jesus is saying. Now as we wrap this up, I think it's important that we understand here that this does not describe any of us perfectly. Uh, This text does not describe any single person perfectly. In fact, there's only one who actually literally took up his cross. Okay? But it does show us the way of discipleship. And these kind of realities should be ever-present, growing in our lives, as evidence of the new birth of regeneration. In fact, our whole hope is based on the fact that he did bear his cross for us. But this is just one of the many ways Luke describes what it means to be a Christian. Let me give you just a few. In chapter 9, he has already said we must take up our cross daily. Chapter 9, verse 23. In chapter 13, verse 3, it says we must repent. Chapter 7, verse 50, we must believe and have faith. Chapter 9, verse 24, we must lose our lives. In chapter 8, verse 21, we must hear and do God's will. In chapter uh, 12, verse 8, we must acknowledge Jesus. And in chapter 13, verse 24, we must enter the narrow door. Our standing with God is not based on our performance, but a failure to pursue discipleship can betray the fact that maybe we do not have true saving faith. So this text is a wake-up call to those who may have just a mere cultural Christianity. Jesus demands our life. I'd like to close as we take the Lord's table this morning with some words from C.S. Lewis in this regard. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked. The whole outfit. This is basic Christianity. Is that you this morning? It can be. Uh, Here we are on Independence Weekend, and you can find true freedom by ironically denying yourself and coming to Christ. And for those of you who he has graciously saved, there is an ordinance that he has entrusted to us to remind us of the cost that he paid that we might be saved and of the cost that we must bear to prove that we are disciples. And so if you are with us this morning...